is the curiosity as to where we are, what we are. Existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Human. This episode is with a close friend of mine, Paul Millard. We first met three years ago in Portland. He'd recently left his job in corporate consulting, and we bonded over how lost we both felt at times. And later that same week, I gave him a copy of The Three Marriages, a book by David White, where he talks about the pathless path that is required for anyone looking to do or create something original. And fast forward to today, and Paul has just published his first book. It's called The Pathless Path, and it's his roadmap of sorts for those of us who might have had the courage to to quit the default path and taking an experiment-based approach to figure out how to live well. Some of the themes we dive into in this conversation include how he's been exploring the magic of non-doing, a few of the powerful questions he uses during curiosity conversations with others who are looking to take the leap, how to navigate the painful reality that family and friends just might not understand decisions to walk away from a, a successful career, and what he believes holds most people back from living more intentionally. And finally, the big breakthrough moment he experienced in the midst of writing his book. This episode is also officially sponsored by me, or more specifically, the nervous system mastery training that I'll be running later this year. Applications for the spring cohort will be opening up soon. So if you're curious to nerd out on research-backed protocols for emotional self-regulation and resilience, you can find more details at nsmastery.com, which is also linked in the show notes. Okay, without further ado, I give you this fun and inspiring conversation with my dear friend, fellow podcaster and ally in resisting the default path Mr. Paul Millard. Okay, welcome, Paul. How are you feeling in three words? I should have known this question was coming, but I didn't prepare. <laughs> uh, You're not meant to. How are you feeling? <laughs> un, un, unprepared. Okay. Um, excited uh, and optimistic. Awesome. Cool. Well, um, I'm I'm also excited for this, and I think uh, we've been threatening to record a podcast together for well several years at this point. Um, and it turns out that you had to write a book to make it happen. So, <laughs> thank you for thank you for making the time. Um, and yeah, you, you probably know the format of these to some to some extent. So, I wanted to kick off by asking: Were you exceptionally curious as a child? And if so, could you tell me something that you were curious about? Every time I listen to your podcast, I think about this question and I, I, I go back and forth and I'm not quite sure. Okay. Um, but I think most kids are curious. And what I realized is that my obsession with basketball was probably the curiosity. I did not know that. Uh, 
I was obsessed with uh, the college basketball team and the NBA. The college basketball team in my state, University of Connecticut, and uh, men and women's teams growing up, and then the NBA and the Celtics. And I collected cards. I read history books about players. Uh, I played all the time. I wanted to talk about all the time. I played video games. So that was, um, that was something reflecting back. It's like, oh, it's just normal boy things. But I was taking it a little deeper. I remember doing, like, I was creating statistics of the players while watching the games. And... <laughs> That's something that came up when I was listening to that question. I was wow. like, that's probably not that normal. But I do think almost everyone has some ounce of curiosity in their childhood, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, I, uh, I d did not know that or expect that answer. Interesting. Um, and then related, did you have any favorite books or stories growing up that come to mind? Um, and, and, and asking that question with the context of sometimes the narrative is kind of connected to our life's purpose in some shape or form. Yeah. My mom told me that I was obsessed with the book, the sorcerer's apprentice. Um, and I, I reread this book to try and figure out if there are any themes. And I think it was a stretch to find one. I, I couldn't really figure it out. Like maybe there is some sort of, there's like a dark um, takeaway from that story of like kind of following the rules. Mm. Um, but maybe I, I think there's probably elements of like learning and apprenticeship and things like that. Maybe. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't, haven't read that myself. Um, it's a, I think it's a popular Disney book, but it was one that I just like kept wanting to read over and over again. Interesting. Cool. Well, um, Okay, so as maybe as context for listeners, so we first met at an event that was, th I think, three years ago uh, called WDS in Portland. And we've since traveled around Japan, Bali. Uh, we live together in Oaxaca in Mexico. Um, but I'd love to hear a little bit about the time before we met. So maybe you could paint a bit of a picture of a default path pool for me, the one who existed before we, we met in Portland. Yeah, growing up, I think one thing interesting and maybe related to the earlier questions you were asking was that I was just pretty good at stuff, like pretty good at school, kind of coasted. And because of that, I don't think I faced many bumps in the road hmm. that caused me to kind of like step back and question things. So I kind of just like floated through school and then going, going to undergrad university uh, I was around really smart people, like almost exclusively for the first time. And these people were so driven. I had never seen anything like this before. Um, I grew up in a family that there's successful people, but nobody really talks about work when you hang out. Um, so now people were like freshmen of university and they're already talking about grad school. And I'm like, what is this? This is weird. Uh, but I got excited by that as any... Uh, as many young men do in desires to kind of prove themselves and mm. uh, do impressive things, feel special um, and got really wrapped up in that. And mm. there are probably two things driving me. I did a couple internships in undergrad for big corporations and I was like, oh no, 
we're not doing this for <laughs> several decades. And then uh, just wanting to like do better, improve myself. Um, so if there was some higher rung on any credential or ladder I could find, I wanted to do better. I wanted the next thing, right? Mm. Um, so I was working at Pratt & Whitney for my first summer and like they talked about how good GE was. So I tried to break into GE and did an internship at GE. But then when I was there, I found out about strategy consulting. I was like, well, I want to do that. They get to work with the CEO and work on the coolest problems. Mm. Um, so I, I really tried to break into consulting for a couple of years and uh, ended up breaking in, spent nine years there and uh, ended up walking away at the end of that. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that, that it reminds me of um, I studied economics at university as well as philosophy. And I remember at the time there was this like really intense kind of competitive pressure to get the internships at the at the Baines and the BCGs and the McKinsey's. And it, there was almost this sense of like, if you didn't have one of these internships or even a job position lined up for after you graduated, that you were in some way falling behind. And And, and I remember thinking at the same time that like, that felt weird, but also I felt like I was behind. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's a strange, it's a strange sensation. This is a weird thing too. Like everyone buys into this too. Yeah. No, yeah. no adults are around us saying, well, actually, you don't have to figure it out by 25. They're like mm -hmm. pushing even harder. Like you gotta yeah. get that first job. Yeah. So it's almost like this mass state of scarcity and mm. sort of like a lack. I mean, the reason I wrote my book is because I thought we needed a new story for how we think about work. Mm. And the story everyone buys in now is like, you kind of have to figure it out by 25 or otherwise you're screwed. <laughs> um, <laughs> and the older you get, you realize how crazy that is. <laughs> yeah, it's, and it's that, so true. And you look around and the people I see around that are up, alive and energized later in life or they take such weird paths mm -hmm. like maybe they started on those paths but they didn't start figuring out what they really wanted to do 10 20 even years down the road yeah absolutely I, I remember going to one of the it was like the Durham University Careers Fair and I, I spent kind of several hours in this like giant marquee hall talking to talking to people and I remember walking away thinking that essentially there were like four available career paths. I could be a consultant, I could be a, a banker or a lawyer or a doctor, but I was probably too late to be a doctor because I hadn't done the right GCSEs. <laughs> so it was like this such like narrow limiting perspective that was presented to me. And it, it's only been in, in, I'd say like, you know, recent years where listening to uh, people like Kevin Kelly, who I, I know spent like his entire 20s until he was in his early 30s, just traveling and taking photographs around the world and then came back and kind of co-founded Wired Magazine and, and all these things. And it seems like the people that have done the genuinely most interesting things tended to use their 20s for experiments and kind of following their curiosity and, and like running tests maybe to kind of see what it is they were drawn to. Well, I think too, something has changed dramatically, even since when we graduated, the upsides to curious, the upsides to curiosity, like the returns on just being a curious person that knows a broad range of stuff is mm. dramatically higher than it was even 10 years ago. 
right? So the amount of paths we can take now has expanded and keeps expanding exponentially. Mm. But we don't really have a new way of thinking about that, right? We're still, it almost makes people cling more to certain paths mm. because the, the, you think, you think it's um, so intimidating that there are so many options there that people are like, they just need some kind of certainty or they need to know where they're going. Well, it's dizzying. You mm. like, there's a comfort in thinking there's four paths. Mm. If there were a thousand, where would you even start? Mm -hmm. And then mm. just sampling that many different kinds of work, something, I mean, I've been trying to do over the last five years since being self-employed, it takes a really long time to try every little new thing. Right. And you, you can't try every little new thing, right? You can only try the things that are kind of there and, and alive for you. Um, well, so th this is probably a great segue to talking about the book. And, and firstly, I want to just say congrats on publishing it, um, The Pathless Path for, for listeners. Um, I know it's been a real labor of love, kind of taking that that Google Doc that that I had a, a preview of in when we were living together in Mexico. <laughs> so how does it how does it feel to have that out in the world right now like what what has your experience been the spirit of the book is very emergent out of hundreds of conversations experiences i've had um, learning from people like my friends like you who are uh, essentially making it up as they go carving their own unique paths trying to bring forth the things inside of them which they're kind of called to create or put out in the world mm. and uh I've had so much fun having that be like, I call it my creative engine, like having conversations with people, having that inspire questions. I explore those questions. I come up with more answers. People want to explore those with me. So in some sense, I, I sort of validated a lot of what I was writing about by observing the world, uh, noticing experiments and what happened in my own life and just research and uh, deep dives into how we think about work. So, um, it feels weird to hit publish because I can, I fully intend to just keep exploring this. Mm. Uh, work is such a fun topic for very curious people because it touches so many elements mm -hmm. of life. Uh, so in some sense you sort of package it and hit publish on Amazon and then physical books like show up. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I fully intend to keep on going. It's, it's pretty amazing to see the reaction of kind of the vibe I was trying to inject in the book, which is that it's like a conversation with a friend, um, that's saying, Hey, you're not crazy. Mm -hmm. What you're doing matters. Like keep going. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think it's a book people like me and you wish they had five, 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. It's, it's got a very kind of Seth Godin kind of, um, feel to it of, of like writing a giant permission slip of kind of like, like you've got this, like you can, you can do this. Um, and based, based on some uh, like early feedback or just responses from readers, is there anything you think that's specifically resonating or is it more just that general tone of, of like kind of permission almost? So the inspiration for the book is I've had these weekly curiosity conversations since 17 on my calendar. Every Wednesday, people can book them. Uh, I still do them. 
and I've talked to probably three, 400 people at this point. And there's increasingly like a wider range of people that are exploring these questions around work, but there's a core group of people that have just always sort of known whether they interrogate that feeling, take action on it or not. They've always just sort of known they don't want the standard recipe for life. Um, but a compelling alternative isn't really out there. And there are a lot of um, pseudo paths, as I call them, like be a quit your job and be a startup founder. Hmm. Right. It's a, it's like sorting the default path, but kind of just embracing another newly very defined script. Hmm. Um, so the question I always ask is what, what is the path that's not a path? And mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. the metaphor of the pathless path, I think, speaks for itself. And it's a phrase and a metaphor that resonates with people like right away or it doesn't. Right. And so I'm writing for the people it does resonate with. They're like, yes, mm -hmm. I want like a book of 100 recipes and I want to pick five of them and inject them into my life. Right. Mm -hmm. um, or not even recipes, just like, oh, that energy or like that. Um, that experiment or that way of applying different mental models. Mm. This is, this is really interesting. So, um, like something that I was gonna, or hoping to talk to you about was one trap that I noticed in a lot of people when I was working at escape the city, which is kind of, you know, we were involved in these conversations was that people would leave their full-time nine to five jobs to start a business or a startup, but they'd end up taking the same mindset and approach and just apply it to this new line of work. And often after a few years, whilst they had the theoretical freedom in their business, it, it ended up becoming a cage for them that was even more constricting. So I, I love this, this idea of like the pseudo path versus the pathless path. What do you think differentiates the two? And, and it sounds like it's like the energy or the impulse behind it, but could you, could you speak to that a little bit more? I think that's really interesting. I think it's the spirit of non-doing. <laughs> really, I, I think okay. it's about okay. hitting pause uh, before moving forward, right? We have this idea, especially in Western culture, that life is kind of like this endless, busy mo motion, doing, uh, progress, metrics, goals, outcomes, productivity, all, all these words. Um, and you'll see it play out. People will talk about their Sundays. Oh, how was your weekend? Oh, I had a very productive Sunday. I did, I did my laundry, I catch up with my yard work. Um, in a sense, nothing's been done. Like a bunch of stuff has been moved around, right? That, mm. that story of like, I've checked a bunch of stuff off is created. And the question I ask is like, why, why do anything at all? Right. And that's kind of the interesting space I learned to explore on my path and I was able to explore that because my entire goal when I left my job was to never create another job like that. Hmm. I knew I didn't want a job container, <laughs> mm -hmm. but I didn't know what I wanted to actually create. Hmm. So I kind of just eliminated a lot of options. So it was very easy to say no to a very obvious opportunity that would pay me money and make my life easier hmm. because the whole goal was to not create a job, but I didn't know what else to create. Mm. So this, this is really interesting. And this brings up two things for me. One of them is that I think for people listening, um, 
there would be like like feeling into that decision there would be a almost like an existential fear of avoid um and that, that's that's one piece and, and the second is that um for me i i sense that there's almost like a uh, you, you write you write in the book about the dynamics of mourning the career version of yourself and i think that there is a very real aspect of grief associated with letting go of these um particularly like linear career focused aspirations and dreams um do you feel like if in some ways that first year there was like an aspect of like grieving for the default path pool and the, the aspirations that he put out into the world was that part of what was creating this dynamic now it's clear that i was grieving and okay. i was figuring out how to deal with that i don't think i had the language i don't think i had peers around me mm. i didn't meet you um until a year in i knew a couple people i had been talking with but you were really the first person i like entered into a deeper conversation about this stuff mm. um, and now i have tons of people i talk to about this and mm. i realize all these elements are very similar in common but that first year yeah it was i think there's always a first phase when you kind of quit your job which is this hustle like this burst of energy i need to like need to like stop the flooding and like get some money get some confidence and then move forward mm. and then about seven months in i had like done a bunch of freelance projects and but i had a lot more free free time and in that space the extra space between my job and the freelancing i was doing there was this like question of like and it was really ignited by Andrew Taggart's essay I read, which was like, mm -hmm. if work dominated your every moment, would life be worth living? Mm -hmm. And that question, I couldn't get it out of my mind. So after seven months, I just decided to stop pursuing consulting work secretly. I didn't tell anyone. And I just started waking up and doing stuff I like doing or just not doing anything. <laughs> And this gets back to your, what you were saying before, it felt terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I felt shame for not working, not being a contributor to society. I felt um, like I was lying to people because I wasn't telling people what was really going on. Um, I didn't know why I was doing this or what was to come from it. And yeah, it was, it was like, it's like, grieving process um it probably took me two to three years to really like let go of my past and i, I think it showed up in my journey in my writing and as an opposition to my former path hmm. like that path is not good and is as you read my book you probably noticed there wasn't that intensity toward or anger towards my old path anymore yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah. it really softened through writing the book especially Mm. I think I like fully forgave that path. It had nothing to mm. do with that. It was really just my lack of understanding of like who I was and how it mapped onto the path I had chosen. Mm. Wow, that's that's really powerful. Um, yeah, I, I can really relate to that feeling of almost like isolation and loneliness that people sometimes feel, um, which I, I think is a combination of a the not being a mainstream story such as the one you're kind of putting out there, but but also. I think when we're in that mode of being, there is almost like a lack of receptivity as well. And there's this belief that we need to do everything by ourselves and there's a less inclination to kind of ask for help. And I think that kind of comes further down the path as well. Um, 
yeah there's there's there's, there's so much here do you well this, this is maybe a, a one, one way to take it like what do you think um are some of the main fears that people experience who are tempted to take the leap and, and i know you wrote in the book that um you feel like people in your life might love you less if you do this is, is that do you think that's the main one or what were some of the fears that showed that showed up for you both before and in the kind of first few years that's the question that consistently gets to the heart of things uh-huh. and there may be other fears attached to that uh like the fear of what will i even do people say this all the time what would i even do if i didn't work Mm. right and that's a really interesting question to explore there's so much behind that um and it could be related to well if i can't find stuff stuff to do i'm not like a worthwhile human Mm. right and like who's gonna love me if i'm not doing anything uh there's a lot there um there's like money fears uh health fears um fear of like what if i don't like it um there and some of these fears are infinite uh like they don't go away and you can probably relate to like the money fear i don't think i think similar to me you haven't optimized for maximize income mode um which doesn't mean we're secretly financially secure it means that we're willing to chop up that massive worry into Mm -hmm. minor existential crises we (laughs) sprinkle throughout the year (laughs) that's a good way to put it (laughs) and and it's like i think my approach in my path has been learning how to take these abstract worries and turn them into manageable doses Mm -hmm. that i see as like oh i see you you're you're showing up and making me worry about money right now i i I see (laughs) you but we've done this dance before we can we can move forward Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's really, that's really interesting. And it, it seems like, it seems like the, the process or at least part of it is like changing the fuel source is how, is how I kind of think about it. It's like you're changing from being motivated by the shoulds in life, by the things that you think you should be doing or the things you've been told to do and more following the, the, the impulse or the kind of emergent desires, which may change on a kind of daily or weekly basis. Um, does that kind of, does that kind of resonate? Yeah, I think early on in my path, there was almost a sense of wonder for finding out about myself. Mm. Like, oh, wow, I have never tested my actual desires. Mm. (laughs) Right. So I lived in a nice apartment when I left my job and then my, I had no income for three months. So I moved to Boston to save costs. I had found a client opportunity up there and I moved in with four other young twenties people with one bathroom in a five bedroom house. (laughs) And that's not like a thing 32 year olds who were like, quote unquote, successful do. Um, and it felt embarrassing until I actually lived there. (laughs) And Mm. I really enjoyed it Mm. and I had more time because I had lowered my rent and didn't have to worry about money as much. And Mm. they were really fun to hang out with and really curious, interesting people. And it was fine. Mm. And I survived and it made me curious to test more. So what Mm. 
what am I comfortable in living in different circumstances? Do I, do I really need a nice restaurant and food? Do I really need this? Do I really need that? Hmm. And so my mindset was like, I don't really know what I want, but if I can test it, I can at least feel how it feels. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, that reminds me of, I think it's a Seneca story of like spending a day a month in poverty, yeah. eating like rice and beans, not because you, you have to, but just to kind of, so you don't get used to the comforts that you already have and you appreciate what you have even more. I think that's a just a really worthwhile kind of mindset to have. And what I discovered is I valued time and autonomy over what I worked on way more than I was valuing it. Right. I, I would like inch out like some freedom within the constraints of my job. And I thought I was like, I told the story I told myself was like, I'm doing my best at like getting, I'm like leaving it early on a Friday to like go home for the weekend, spend a little more time with my family. It's like a couple hours. You rebel. Like, right and i thought oh i'm a rebel i'm different than everyone else i'm like actually getting the trade-offs right it turns out my trade-offs are like i'm willing to give up a ton of money Hmm. Uh, um i'm willing to like just break even to have as like i'm willing to put it all the way to the margin of like covering my cost of living to have as much freedom to work on creative projects wander around help people um spend time with family spend time with my wife Hmm. yeah it's um so connected to that um i i enjoyed reading the section around notions of laziness and uh, and the you know the kind of conceptions that we have around doing nothing or the fears of doing nothing how do you think how has that notion of laziness kind of changed for you over the years yeah so I reject the frame now is probably my short answer. And because I don't see something as I don't see productive as like the default and the current, like the proper state of being, Hmm. I kind of see that if you're, if you're able to tap into internal motivation, pretty much in the right things and you create the space, pretty much nothing can stop you. Like I knew early on that this book would be completed when I hear other people talking about like writing as a real grueling thing. I don't know when I'll be able to ship this. I didn't understand that because the, the pull towards Mm -hmm. the finish line was inevitable for me Mm. in such a powerful way. Mm. Um, So, and in writing that, I didn't, well, I didn't have this frame of productive or lazy, right? So I would get stuck sometimes and I would just stop. And I didn't know when I would start writing again. Hmm. And it was sometimes a month and I would just like sit with it. I'm like, it will come, it will come. Hmm. Um, And one of my favorite quotes now is from John Steinbeck in a letter to his son. He says, nothing good gets away. And it's kind of a spirit of what, um, of my approach is like, I feel like all the good things I want to do are not, they're not going to get away. And if I let them emerge, um, Mm. that's probably the most important thing. So it shifts from like 
micromanaging your time to mm. thinking about the environment of your life. And this is from a book too, that you recommended to me, Stephen Cope, the great work of your life. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about Robert Frost and how like Robert Frost really designed the constraints. Like I'm going to go live on a farm and like make it such that writing every day is what I can do. Mm -hmm. um, so I think very much about what are the circumstances I can create um, such that um, when that motivation comes, it can really take off and emerge in a natural way. So it was really based on a book you gave me, Stephen Cope, Great Work of Your Life. And I was so turned off by that book. Like you recommended to me, it probably took five recommends <laughs> for me to read it. Yeah. Because it sounds so hustly, like, oh, do the great work, like mm. do a startup. Um, but wow, that book is amazing. Mm. Um, and it really talks about like creating the conditions such that once you find what you want to do, yeah. you can really double down on that. And so I've thought a lot about that, really creating the space such that when that inevitable motivation comes, mm. I can really let it uh, flow. And I don't know what's next or what's going to emerge, um, but I know enough by this point, five years in that there's like, what am I going to do is a solved question. Like my curiosity will take care of that at this point. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I really love that Steinbeck quote of nothing good gets away. And I think in the book you, you added like nothing good gets away as long as there is enough spaciousness, which I think is also really important. And, yeah. and I think this kind of comes into, um, there was a, a tweet that I shared the other day that ended up getting kind of getting shared a lot. And it was around this, like this question of, of what is the proper role for the mind? And, and I think that what we're getting at is that it is our role as a kind of like thinking analytical human to create and craft the conditions for the creativity and for the curiosity to emerge, which requires a certain degree of spaciousness. It requires like a certain degree of safety as well. And, you know, a certain degree of, um, comfortability in uncertainty or, or negative capability, as I think John Keats talked about. And I think that's a really, it's a really beautiful reframe because it's, you're not like saying like, how do I get this thing done? Because like you said, for you with the book, there was just this pull and that you felt this inevitability about it. It was more about how can I just create the conditions for this, this thing to emerge? Yeah. And the default path can keep you trapped in a sort of ongoing, just pseudo like low grade busyness, mm -hmm. uh, such that you never create that space. You hear people like it kills me when I hear people, Oh, I've always wanted to write a book and you know, they can't do it on the conditions of their current path mm -hmm. because the amount of energy their body is using just to keep going on that path is so enormous. Mm. And I was shocked at how much energy has been unlocked. My motivation and ability to do hard things is so far beyond what it was on like in more traditional jobs mm. that it really, it surprises me. It blows me away. Mm. Mm. Yeah. You, you talked about the, um, the misery tax in the book, which is, the stuff that people spend money on to keep them sane and, and functioning in jobs that they, that they hate, <laughs> um, which I thought was, was funny. Yeah. And it's hidden because you're, you're never testing that path against another path. Mm. I think one of the upsides of being entrepreneurial or self-employed or doing freelancing, or even just taking a gap year is that you can compare one way of living against another. 
you can quickly change your environment and see how you adapt. Mm. Oh, I'm in Mexico now and the sun's out. I am actually just finding myself going out more. Or, oh, I'm in the dark and I find I don't socialize as much. Um, or I'm happier now and I am spending less money on alcohol or stop drinking altogether, which is one thing that happened to me when like about one year into my journey. Um, yeah. And so it, for me, it's like, there's no right path, but have you tested that? Mm. Yeah. That's the question I always come back to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like people will say like, oh, I could, I need a house. I could never live like you do says homeowner since 1975 <laughs> it's like okay i sure but have you tested that no you've never tested that you have no idea and that's the challenge of the human experience right we only get like 80 years to do all these tests and i'm all i'm almost 40 years into it and mm. man i have so many more tests i want to run <laughs> so Along, along those lines, I remember you once saying, <clears throat> like semi-jokingly, that you were optimizing your life for the number of days that you got to spend with your with your grandma. And I was I was quite moved by that. Um, what what were some of the other things that you were like kind of testing or like optimizing in a non-optimizing state of mind, if you, if you know what I mean? Yeah. So every every month or three month period, I'm always trying to pick like an intention. What is the thing I'm mm. focusing on? And the goal really is to find out, do I do what I claim to care about? Mm. Right. Mm. And so it also helps me make trade-offs. Right. So if I'm saying I'm optimizing for getting outside, when given the trade-off between doing a little more work, so I feel okay, or going outside, do I go outside? Um, now over time I've learned the wisdom of just going outside. I did this today. I had like a lot of stuff to do and I was like, it's sunny out though. I'm going for a bike ride. Mm. This is the whole point of this path. Mm -hmm. I rather the other stuff crash and burn. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, and it, it's, it's really to set up the trade-offs mm. because like when I'm home in Connecticut and like my grandmother's around like i'm just going to opt into that i'm gonna cancel my calls and disappoint other people or drop the ball on doing better on like stuff that might make me money mm -hmm. and it's really a comfort of like failing in traditional ways um because once you've figured out how to like make money or make income in predictable ways and you you know how to like pursue opportunities when you make those trade-offs, you know you're failing in a way that would lead you to be seen as successful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Failing in the <clears throat> in, in the old paradigm, for sure. Yeah, but it's a real failing, right? Because there's, I think on a, I don't know if you feel this, but on a very solo path, you're constantly aware that nobody's ever really praising you. Or like talking about you in a way like, oh, this, he just got promoted. Like you can hear it in the lack of those kind of conversations. Oh, this person just got promoted. They just got a raise. Like people talk about that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and it doesn't really bother me anymore because I'm very happy with my path. Mm. But you, it, there's just like a sort of emptiness there and a, and a sadness. 
um, I've been thinking about this lately. Like there is a lack of progress for unlike measurable metrics that everyone agrees upon, um, which raises the stakes to create your own game. Like if you don't create your own game, you're screwed. Mm-hmm. You're going because if you, and this is kind of an undertone of my book, if you don't invent your own principles, your own story, your own success, um, you're opting into the default, right? Mm. So you're going to have to optimize around money or um, measurable success or those kind of things. Mm. Yeah, there's almost this... um and maybe this is kind of like the year afterwards of limbo or, or like liminal space in between games let's say where you're you're opting out of one set of rules and you have to experiment with new sets of rules to see what type of game you want to be playing and i guess that kind of building on james castle's idea of the infinite game this is the the game in which you're kind of going into and the more you play it the more you get comfortable with different sets of constraints um yeah yeah, a lot of people have asked me after publishing a book, what's next? Are you going to write another book? Right? Cuz cuz suddenly I've you're, popped you're up from the you're, land you're, you're of you're a... <laughs> <laughs> Right, I've popped up from the the world of illegible uh wanderers and popped up to legible world. Yeah, yeah. I'm now I now have this book. You're now back on the like, default path. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're in our you're in our world now. It's like sna- what's snakes, your next snakes and book? ladders. You've like done a you've you've leapfrogged. <laughs> And it's kind of funny because I'm just going to keep doing what I've been doing. Um, maybe it will be more successful or less successful. I, I have no idea. Um, like the book is getting some interest now early. In six months, no people could be reading it, but it still is something I found worth doing and I'll never regret doing. Um, I'm just going to keep kind of playing the game I'm playing, learning, adjusting the rules and figuring out more things as I go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it strikes me that um, that you were very or deeply intrinsically motivated to write this just by kind of based on that early inevitability of the book being completed as opposed to, you know, other authors that I've talked to for which they almost feel like they have to push and force themselves to sit down and write and it becomes like a grind and it becomes something that they they feel obliged to deliver to the external world as opposed to something that's like coming deeply, coming from within them yeah so i moved to taiwan in 2018 after a year of uh, self-employment in the u.s i'd done some experiments done some travel and done some remote work abroad in that first year but i moved to taiwan to kind of lean into that digital nomad mode though i had no work to do remotely i just went i was called to go there um and I didn't have any work to do. Also, no one would hire me. Like remote work was not cool yet. People would tell me, oh, we really like your background, but really need someone in person. Um, It's like, okay, well, not happening. Um, And so I had nothing to do. Uh, And I just started writing more. And I don't know why it started happening, but like just waking up and making coffee and writing with nothing else to do for the day was like Mm. something was brought alive in me in that moment. Mm. And in those months, I kind of knew that writing had become something that was so important to me Mm. um, that I wanted to keep going. And 
it probably didn't appear like that to other people, but like I had very little audience at that point, but it was very clear that I would be writing for the next 50 years. Mm. Mm. Um, so in a sense, there was like no rush to get anywhere. Um, and I could just kind of take my time and it really was about creating the environment to like keep that writing going. Um, and that's what Stephen Cope writes about is like the real work of your life. And that's kind of what I think the real work of your life is figuring out the things you want to keep doing. Mm -hmm. And if you find one of those things, it's like magic because it, the only challenge then is like figuring out how to create the space to do it. Mm -hmm. Cause that activity will give you the energy that like really nourishes your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And um, something that you mentioned before we hit record here was that you, f you felt like you became a better writer during the course of writing this book. And, and I'm interested in the process because you were clearly, you know, you, you had a you had a good way with words and, you, you know, you'd written many blog posts before you started the book. But what was what was the process of that kind of 12 to 13 months like for you, or almost like apprenticing to writing full-time to some degree i i looked back on this i thought i went into it with the mindset of writing a book i really wasn't i put out last december january that i was going to publish a, a book but then i described it as like a collection of edited and uh, polished essays that i had written before um i think early on in in the writing i realized that there was a bigger story to tell I didn't know how to tell it at the time, but I knew it was like both one, a challenge to get a, become a better writer to pull that off and two, a challenge of figuring out what it, what are those pieces? Mm -hmm. Um, so I talked to Sasha Chapin early in the process. He's a writing coach and he just told me, Paul, this stuff you've written about like your health crisis. He's like, it's powerful, but he's like, but you're not that good at, writing about like the emotions and the, <laughs> the deeper stuff. Yeah. He really just told me, let it rip, like just go all out, mm. pour your heart into it mm. and just see where you end up. Mm. Uh, he's like, you're not going to go too far. He's like some people that are emotional writers go too far and can't constrain it, but you won't mm. like, mm. cause you're such a strong analytical writer. Mm. Um, and that opened up something in me. And mm. I think through the process of writing, I really, figured out it really resolved so much for me if it, it made me realize um why this path mattered so much to me mm. it it made me not ashamed to say i care about helping people thrive and that i think it matters um and it it really helped me release um my anger at my previous path and it was really, it was in September. I was trying to write the intro. I kind of had the flow of the book, but I just couldn't, like, I couldn't say why it mattered. And I just titled, like, Why It Mattered. And I just sat there for, like, four hours. I was just so stressed. <laughs> and <laughs> Angie, my wife, looked at me. She's like, you need to go wander. You need to go for a ride on the scooter and figure it out. And like on that scooter ride, it like, I just started like crying and like, I couldn't like everything just 
made sense. The whole book finished itself then. Mm. And I like pulled over, I pulled over my notepad and I like wrote the intro Mm. in like three minutes. (laughs) And, um, it it was like tied with my parents. So if you, if you read the intro of my book, like you can see it. And I think I had this thing to resolve. Like, I think I was, Oh, like I thought like the surface level was like, I was like mad that like my dad worked a lot. I had this idea in my head that like, I thought my dad like worked too much and like, I was angry about that. And I re- I really wasn't angry about that. It was that like, I hated that. I had two parents who were so freaking amazing who were told over and over again that they couldn't do stuff. Mm. Mm. And like, Mm. it's like, yes. And this is why it matters. Mm. Um, And yeah, it was like, man, I was like, I wrote it. I dumped it on a page when I got back. And like, I was like trying to read it to Angie and I was just like bawling Mm -hmm. and like, (laughs) and so I think, you know, when you're done with a book, when you've like broken yourself, I I don't know who said that, but like (laughs) when you've like broken yourself open and like ever since that day, like I really like, I'm a different person since that day. Mm. Like it was like something switched and I really just like everything feels so light now. And like, I don't have this tension with my previous path. Mm. And I really have like completely mourned that and moved on. And I'm like, I think I'm able to fully like give myself to others for the next like 10 plus years to like really enable people to make, make shit that matters in their own life. Mm. And like, Mm bring forth what's inside them. Mm. Wow. Yeah, there's that's that's beautiful. There's so much there. And I as you were sharing, I thought about something that Stephen Cope talks about. Um where I th- I think he, he talks about the parents who kind of sacrifice their own creativity or their own creative impulses in order to kind of like get a steady income. And they kind of do it like quote unquote for the kids. But what the kids pick up on is this kind of subconscious narrative that you're that you're not meant to be fully alive in life and that you're not meant to be doing the things that truly light you up. And I think I, I can certainly relate to that in, in my, my life as well. And something I, I wanted to comment on was that you your your style of writing has also, and I'm sure you're aware of this as well, but it shifted from being a kind of like very kind of cutting critique of total work and of everything that is wrong with society to the kind of the final chapters in the book, which are almost like drenched with with like wonder and use the word magic and like there's this sense of possibility. And I'm like, who is this? Who is this? Who is this writing? And um it's yeah, it's really it's really beautiful to see. And um that, that kind of makes sense to me as well. Yeah, I think if you map the 10 chapters to the last five years of my life, I think they'd probably map pretty well in terms of energy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very like hero's journey. I didn't intend it to be that. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is like this this tightness and then there's like this breaking down and then this Mm -hmm. like slow waking up, like 
years of figuring it out. And I think that's one thing that might be interesting to dive into is like people's leaps are not these bold, courageous acts. They're like slow boiling of like tension in their current path and like small moments of wonder and possibility. And then like mm -hmm. years later, then the leap is like the step you take. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. And then the last couple of years have just been like, okay, I'm doing this. I've made it work for four years. Like let's own it. Let's not like fight the default path. Let's mm -hmm. like fight for the people that talk to me and what changed in 2020, the pandemic, uh, suddenly millions of people showed up to my writing, <laughs> not like millions literally following me, but like millions of people were having these existential crises about work. Mm -hmm. And I was like there having written about it for a few years and people would talk to me in pain, excited about different paths, doing bold things all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And like, it really was doubling down on like, who do you serve? It's these people. I'm writing for these people and I want to show them it can be awesome. And I want to show them it can be this new way. And like, mm -hmm. I've like, I'm so much happier now. And like cool things are happening in my life. And like, I'm able to show up every day doing things I want to do. And like, yeah. th this is possible. I want, <laughs> like, I, I feel like at the end of the book, I was like screaming, yeah. like, yes, you go. And I'm here for you. And I'm your friend. And like, I believe in you. Yeah, wow, um, wow. So yeah, it was, it was cool. Like, I'm, I'm glad that, um, it's cool that that surprised you too. Cause I think you saw some of the lows spending time mm. with me too. Mm. And you've kind of seen me at different points of the journey. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's amazing. And, and I think you can motivate people. Um, and I think often people are more driven and motivated by the anger at the pain they've kind of taken on from the various aspects of the default path, which I think are essentially ways in which we are kind of um, suppressing aspects of ourself or rejecting aspects of ourself and the the aliveness that comes on the other side and, and and I liked that you said it was kind of like an accidental hero's journey and it made me think of you you quoted Bill Plotkin I think one or two times in the book and he talks about the he calls it the journey of soul descent which is more of like a, a, a caterpillar going into a cocoon and then literally dissolving and like melting in the chrysalis um you know an, an ego dissolution essentially and then coming out the other side as a butterfly but not realizing the caterpillar doesn't know it's going to become a butterfly it's like but it has to trust in that process of, of becoming and i think that's probably a more accurate metaphor because it feels painful at the time it feels like a lot of what you know and a, and a lot of what you the way in which you oriented in the worlds is no longer useful and so there is that kind of painful liminal period and it feels like having guides like yourself to kind of, who are, to kind of talk to people who are early on in that path and be like yeah it sucks right now like yeah you're probably going to feel really uncertain and scared about money and not not know what to do but there is there is a way through we've reached a state of abundance such that um like it's relatively easy if you're willing to like work a decent job and just kind of show up and do that to like meet your needs in today's world. Um, so it becomes crazy to pair that with the idea that you would purposely just blow your life up. Um, and you get a lot of propaganda targeted at this, like quit your job and work on a beach, be a digital nomad, right? It, it only is like this positive. It's like you can quit and do greater things. Um, and they never talk about the descent right? The, the cocoon period. Um, 
And I think my message is it might suck, but it might also be worth it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the one thing which is promising is that the minimum effective dose does not appear to be what I'm doing, like quitting and wandering and experimenting for five years. It appears to be one month off from worker mode. Mm, interesting. A one, wow. You, you think like a one month sabbatical can have that bigger, bigger impact. Oh, over and over again, within a month, there is enough like softening mm. that occurs mm. and distance from worker mode mm. that people start imagining possibilities and maybe they go back into a job. Mm. I mean, I've talked to people that go back into a job after a month and they're telling, they're telling me the craziest things. Like I am doing the same exact job and I am loving it. Mm. Like I took these 15% of things that were driving me crazy and I'm just not going to deal with them anymore. Mm. And like, I know exactly what matters to me out of work. I have like this art hobby and like, I'm going to protect that. Cool. And like, it's really cool. And I, I think the majority of people are like that. You're probably like me, which is, and I took longer to realize this. You probably have a setting for like needing more adventure, mm. right? We're probably both on the like, 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 you you go into dark rooms for 10 days, right? <laughs> <laughs> you have a certain draw towards those things sure. that's much higher setting than the average human probably, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm probably not far behind you, um, but not as far as you. But me compared to like the strategy consultant, I was very worried about like, how, how would I pay rent if I quit my job? Well, your million dollars in your savings account, maybe, but, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I thought I was like 10% away from them. I was probably like two standard deviations away from them. Mm -hmm. And because I was only surrounded by those kind of people, I didn't know, um, that there were other models, other paths. And I think that was a huge benefit of just meeting someone like you. Um, who had already been traveling and doing these things, but also speaking the same language of, as me. Mm. And like, just your existence was so powerful for me mm. <laughs> early on in my journey. It, it's weird. Like we, I don't even remember how we met. I think through someone else, but like your last name's one letter off from nine. <laughs> um, and you were curious about this future of work stuff. And I was too. And like, we weren't, we were talking about future of work, but we weren't really talking about future of work in those first conversations. We really were just, it was kind of this subtle invitation to a deeper conversation, right? But we didn't yeah, like yeah. kind of feeling each other out. We didn't really know what we were exploring yet. Totally, yeah. And a subtle invitation to a deeper conversation. You're sounding more and more like David White yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, you David White pilled me. Um, yeah, so I mean, you you indirectly inspired the name of the book you walked up to me that second day after that first conversation is like you just said you need to read this mm. and i was like okay and like that first night i remember going home and reading it i was like oh my god mm. Mm. yeah <laughs> this book like the three marriages by david white yeah. and i think it was a week later at my home in connecticut and i read the line about the pathless path and it says when you first discovered the pathless path you're not meant to know what it means mm. Mm -hmm. but i knew instantly that this was a the phrase that meant everything to me mm. Mm. 
Yeah, it's it, it, it's almost like, and I had a similar experience when I first read it as well. Is it feels very, it feels very validating because, and and like we kind of said before the call, like neither of us really like know what we're doing, but we do feel a kind of a draw in a certain direction, and and being able to name that and to name that that's okay, and that actually, a lot of the more, in my opinion, the more interesting humans in the world have to some extent followed pathless paths for some chapters of their life you know not not always i think people kind of weave in and out to greater or lesser degrees but it's like this is almost like it's like an, an initiation of sorts and the way that david articulates it's both kind of inspiring but it's also quite practical and i think that he kind of talks about you know not taking the second step or the third but just taking the first step that's right in front of you not needing to know exactly where you're going to end up but just being clear on what is the next experiment that i'm going to do or the next you know step that i want to take i love his idea of staying at the frontier mm -hmm. like and i people often don't understand i think your uh, listeners will probably uh, already understand this because they're pretty savvy in these uh thinking poetically about the world but like the frontier is when you're at the edge of like who you are um and you're really kind of like sensing there's this other person but you don't know what it is mm. um but for most of my life the environment i constructed for myself meant that i would never exist at that frontier mm because I was playing in a very safe, predictable way. Mm. Um, and by quitting my job, I was able to take a couple steps and be like, oh, what's over there? Mm -hmm. what's, uh, what's over there? And it, it feels scary, but then you stand out there at the metaphorical frontier and like nothing happens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and like, I've been telling people this phrase, like you can just do things. <laughs> <laughs> like think about it you can just do things like you can do anything you can write a book i i wrote a book that's crazy <laughs> you can just do things so, so th th this this is in, this is interesting because um there's a guy uh martin shaw who i've been reading a lot recently and, and he talks about in his words there's the kind of a, the, the fallacy of like you can do you can be anything you want or you can do anything you want and in his in his opinion it's more of like um you were put here to do a very specific thing and it's your job to figure out what that thing is and i think that's a really helpful reframe because it's less it's less paralyzing and i think it comes back to like we were talking about earlier about creating those conditions that that cultivate the emergence of that thing that we're kind of put here to do and, and so maybe making this more practical for listeners um like what are some of the questions that you ask in your curiosity conversations to bring people closer to that edge or that frontier in their own life? Yeah. I, the question I often go back to is like, what's energizing you? Mm -hmm. What's bringing you alive? And people often have these things, but then they will add a second part. Well, I, I mean, I can't really do that. I gotta like do my job. I gotta, you can't just, you can't just do these things. The, the answer is almost like laying in plain sight. And it seems obvious to me because I've kind of explored these things and taken my own path of waking up to what I really liked and wanted to do. But often people will just tell you what they really want. Uh, I'd love to do X, but you know, you can't do that. Hmm. 
And I'll just sit there and be like, why? And they'll get flustered sometimes because nobody's ever really asked them. People will just go along with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to work. <laughs> like these throwaway lines that kind of, they don't mean anything other than like, yeah, let's bury that idea. Mm. Let's not explore that. Um, and I think people get hung up with this idea again, back to the leaps that they need to do. They need to write the book. It's like, no, just like write one journal entry mm -hmm. and see how it feels yep. Yep. and wake up the next day and see if you want to do another one. Yep. Yeah, there's, there's something really empowering about kind of um, taking that like what feels like a huge different path change or like a leap to like a meaningful experiment that you can do in like a week or two or something that's like very small and practical. And, and I think that to kind of come back to your, your question around like, you know, what is it that you want to do? I think that often people's, at least in my experience, people's surface desires aren't the thing that they're, they're almost like like pointing in the right direction but they're not the thing but until they've done an experiment in that direction they won't realize that and the thing that's beneath that will then surface once they've kind of tried that and i think it's almost this kind of like you're like tacking and you're kind of slowly getting closer to the thing that actually gives you the most energy and brings you the most alive yeah and i don't know if i've found like perfect alignment i'm always tinkering and trying to balance the activities i'm doing totally. but it, it's like getting really clear about what you're claiming to want and then aligning with that. Like, mm -hmm. I want to be a lawyer. And then you ask somebody, well, do you want to like edit documents and be on call seven days a week? No, no, no I don't mm -hmm. want to do that. <laughs> it's like, well, there's a disconnect here, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It's like, or I want to be, uh, I want to be a life coach. Um, well, what does that mean? Like, why aren't you helping people now? right? Where is that impulse? Where's that showing up? And like, maybe it is there and you just haven't really leaned into it, but like, what is that mm. gap? And mm -hmm. how do you think about interesting ways to test these things out? Mm. Yeah. It, it seems like what you're pointing to there is like the disconnect between um, the identity that someone wishes to craft for themselves and what they actually want to do. So I, Annie Dillard says, how we spend our days is in the end how we spend our lives. And that reading that quote was the impetus for me to leave my role at Maptia, um, which kind of sent me on, on this path to some degree. So and, and, and in your in your case, you didn't say, I want to be a published author. I want to be Paul Millard, the, the, the author. You just really enjoyed the process of writing. And that led you to this process. So it, it seems like there's a kind of and, and the experiments need to be I guess, doing the thing as opposed to just putting on the hat of the person they think they want to be. Yeah, I call it the long, slow, dumb, fun way. <laughs> Great. Uh, which is how do I take a, I'm always asking, how could I do this a little bit slower? Hmm. Um, take a little bit longer, um, opt out of uh, clear financial metrics, especially short-term ones and do it on my terms such that I would actually enjoy it. And this pairs with my idea of design for liking work. Um, it was actually something somebody said to me, I submitted questions to Venkatesh Rao's mailbag and he, he was like, well, it actually just sounds like you're designing for liking work. And that phrase stuck with me. It's like, oh yeah, that's actually what I'm doing. I'm not 
I was asking this question about like, how do you decide like whether to be more ambitious or not? Like I'm, and I described how I was working and that's not really the right frame. If you design for liking work, you just kind of commit to doing the work you want to do and then see what emergent opportunities come out from that. And then you just say yes or no. And then if you've <laughs> overcorrected or gone too far into doing things you don't want to do, you go back again. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love I love that. How do you think about and this is something that I kind of wrestle with in my life to some degree as well, that like even if you you love the work that you're doing, you love the writing, um, there is also a a, a kind of um, conversation to be had around the you know, the other really important aspects of life, like taking a, a bike ride in the sunshine, like deep friends, family connections. And, and and I think there can be a trap as well that I've certainly fallen into myself where like loving the work becomes all consuming to the point where um, other aspects of your life and identity begin to kind of fall away to an unhealthy degree. In my first couple of years, I really leaned into non-work experiments, like extended stretches of time where I purposely didn't do work. And I really gained an appreciation for like the wandering and taking bike rides in the middle of the day. And I still look to that as like the fuel for life. Um, so I prioritize it. I, I was saying before I did that today, I had like a lot of work and I wasn't sure if I'd be able to finish it in time, but deep down I was, <laughs> it was sunny out and <laughs> I was like, well, I want to go for a bike ride and everything worked out. It was fine. Um, but like, to me, that's the whole point of what I'm doing. Like the midday bike rides have become like symbolic of the whole point of my journey. Um, so that's one way I've done it. I've just kind of made that like my thing mentally. Um, and I commit, I tell people like, yeah, Tuesday afternoons, I always try to take a bike ride. Um, I'm actually thinking of starting something called wandering Wednesdays, mm -hmm. um, like a group chat where people um, will just post pictures of what they stumble upon mm. on Wednesdays and they have to go like during the work day um, for any amount of time they can. Um, mm. But yeah, that's, yeah. I was talking with somebody else, Sean McCabe about this. He created these uh, sabbaticals um, every seven weeks. And I've implemented this in my life too, where I take every seventh week off mm. uh, mostly um, sometimes it's a challenge, um, but 95% blocked. And he was saying he did it because he was overworking. I actually have the opposite problem of like underworking. Like I'm just not all that motivated by money. Um, I've become more so now that we're living in the US, but um, I created the sabbaticals every seven weeks to like more focus on my work and like really focus on the priority for that six weeks. Mm. Um, and then there's this broader um, calendar of like the year or multiple years where I've noticed over five years now, there's kind of these seasons. Mm. So there'll be a very intense two month period where I go all in on stuff, but then there's a lighter, like more detached, more like less focused, less ambitious. And I think that is like really the key. That is something you can't do in full-time employment. You're kind of like always at a level speed yeah. where I think I 
kind of find joy in like leveling up and going all in. And like when I created a freelance course last year, I went really intense for a month. Mm -hmm. It was so much fun. Mm -hmm. Um, and then after I just kind of like did nothing for two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, and really just focused on that. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And maybe the one exception is like, I think some academics or teachers do have that cyclical nature because of the summer holidays and things. Um, and and it's very much how I've been approaching my work as well in the sense of, um, kind of the in the autumn or the fall uh, last year was kind of course creation mode and then pretty much taking December January off and now kind of ramping back into creation mode again and I anticipate kind of a month or two off over the over the summer and then just kind of having that ebb and flow I, I agree because it, it does feel good to like really immerse yourself in something it's kind of like get your teeth into something deeply and then have an extended period of time afterwards to kind of reset recalibrate um and you know do the other things that are uh, important in a kind of meaningful life and it's also i mean i like writing and the reality is if you just write every day for eight hours you're eventually going to become a pretty dull human can you write for eight hours in a day <laughs> I bet, I bet no i'm saying like, you'd run out of stuff to talk about right. like you'd have to just start writing about being productive right <laughs> right that's, that's, that's um, what happens in twitter sometimes <laughs> yeah yeah exactly like you see these threads where it's just like summarizing other people's ideas or like just summarizing random business ideas it's like yeah they're not generating insights from just exploring or living their life. Um, and yeah, so I see, I mean, I like writing and I kind of realized that like, if I don't take breaks and do different experiments and try stuff, I like, I will stop learning things. So my whole life is like a learning experiment. Next week I'm taking a DJ class. Mm. Nice. I, I'm I'm learning DJing right now as well for um for breathwork. So, yeah, <laughs> we do nice. doing exchange with my friend. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, getting guitar lessons, um, singing lessons, all the things. Yeah, and I think um, I'm probably behind you on this. I think you've always done a good job of really leaning into your inner child and playfulness. But this has become a big theme for me in the last year. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people end up in this state realizing that like the whole, the whole journey of adulthood is like basically just figuring out how to connect with your inner child. Totally. Again. Yeah, totally. And like removing the, the shit that I think got placed there in like our teenage and early twenties and just getting back to that sense of play and that sense of source and that, that place where we are naturally energized. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so wild. Like, it's crazy how it doesn't seem like it in the moment, but I really became more rigid, more serious, less funny, surrounded by people all similarly. And like, you just don't notice, Mm. um, just creeps up on you. Mm. And if I had stayed on that path another five, 10 years, I would have been grumpy mofo. (laughs) So this, this is a nice, um, yeah. And I segue to something I, I wanted to talk to you about. And that was one of the exercises towards the end of your book that was around inverting your future life and this is something that i i think i'll, I'll try myself this weekend but it's basically awesome. sketching out the future version of yourself in in 10 years that you're afraid of becoming um and so I, i'd love for you to like kind of maybe paint that picture a little bit for listeners and and maybe describe like some of the fears that are still present for you like what, what like where your edges are or, or maybe what traps you could see for yourself even though you kind of now publicly stake the claim of walking the pathless path. 
Yeah. So I, I mean, I can, I can read it. Great. Um, Great. So this is my, the whole goal is to like picture a version of yourself in the future that like you don't want to become. So when I was leaving the corporate world, that was like a grumpy middle-aged man who bitches a lot, slightly overweight, long commute, um, isn't present for his family. But like now it's kind of different. So this is 10 years from now. Paul is still committed to the pathless path, a fact that still draws skepticism from other people. He has a couple of kids, but is barely making ends meet and is ashamed of this fact. He goes a few months every year without an income and is filled with insecurity about his finances almost all the time. He's too stubborn to take a full-time job, and instead of admitting he might be wrong about his approach to life, he angrily tweets about how stupid everyone is working in traditional jobs. This is all complicated by ongoing health issues would limit his energy and sometimes leave him semi-bedridden for weeks at a time. That sucks, but <laughs> the the interesting thing is like I can... By writing that, I'm forced to acknowledge almost like the shadow, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Side of like things I'm living with now. I probably have elements of these things. Mm -hmm. And there's two goals. One is to like make sure those don't grow. Mm -hmm. And two, figure out like what are the opposite things I can do. Mm -hmm. So like if I am worried about like still like month to month just making ends meet, like what are some of the bets I can make now? that are more pragmatic, but still aligned with my path that might set me up for mm. less, uh, more freedom in the future and things like that. Or my health, like how can I put my health above everything else such that I really don't have to worry about being out of, knocked out of commission, which has happened to me many times, mm -hmm. but yeah. 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 It, it sounds like, and I think that the money aspect is probably something that's kind of top of mind for a lot of people having these conversations and it sounds like you can kind of choose to change your or at least examine like the inner the inner world or the outer world the the outer world view would be to kind of you know get like a regular freelance contract that kind of gives you that stability and and the inner world perspective might be to um take a more detailed examination of how much money is necessary how much is coming in is there you know uh, how grounded are these fears yeah, so I, I've done the inventory of what do I value and how much do I need. Mm -hmm. um, the numbers vary little. It's, of course, higher in the U.S., um, mm -hmm. but still not that bad. It's doable each year. Um, but like I said in the, in the book, I don't want to play accountant. That's not a personality. <laughs> <laughs> That's just like a tool. Um, so I'm much more excited about like, being more entrepreneurial and exploring things, but still within the limits of like the things I'm not willing to trade off. So while I was abroad, I didn't really do like full on freelance consulting for a few years. So now I'm testing, okay, can I do those projects again? I'm partnering with, I'm working with Andrew Barry, um, working on a corporate project. We're working with this $5 billion um, HR services company. Um, and the interesting thing is like, it's paying good money. I'm able to drop in and do the things I'm good at again from consulting, but I'm able to do it with so much more lightness. Mm. Um, I did a couple of consulting gigs in my first year and it still had all that tension. Like every time there was like an angry client or frustrated client, I would get tight mm. and react. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, oh, this isn't so bad. Mm. I was like so scared of doing this again, but it's like, I could do this. Mm. 
And maybe after this, I'll be like, oh, I'll take a couple of years off from consulting again, <laughs> kind of prove that I could do it. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's always going to be an option and, um, I can drop into that mode if I need to. And mm. I'm not too stubborn. Like I assume when I have kids that, um, that like I'm not going to let them suffer for like my principles. Mm. Um, I'm willing to compromise a lot for kids and try to make more money or do things, but it will probably still be very experimental. Mm. Like maybe I'll get a six month gig and then take six months off. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Yeah, it, it's so important, or I think so important, it's not the right word, but like being able to approach these things with that sense of lightness that it sounds like came from the, the the emotional experience that you had writing the book and no longer like attaching default path pool identity or, or like criticizing him, which is now allowing you to kind of, you know, kind of mm. take these gigs if it, if, it, if it makes sense and if you feel drawn to and not judging those either. Um, there's, it seems like there's just less, less judgment on all fronts and more just kind of following what, what the impulses are. Yeah. And I, I do feel myself getting tight in some of these calls, mm. but it's paired with the, idea, like, I'm just also saying you're okay. You've, you've, re, you've done this and moved on and mm. you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Nice. Whereas like years ago, it'd be like, Run! Escape! Escape! <laughs> Go to Bali. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's interesting in 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 like a in like a breathwork context. You're almost like you're pendulating into that into that tightness, and perhaps you know there's I think there's a learning or just a, an invitation here to like how relaxed and loose can you be even in those environments that might feel like kind of boardroom type um, situations. Um, yeah it's it's it because it's 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 also i think viewing the whole world as like a a dojo for learning and how at ease can we be in any of these situations and i think initially there has to be that breaking away from the thing to kind of get that spaciousness and find our instability but then it, it's like i think of like ramdas kind of who spent you know 15 20 years in the himalayas meditating his his balls off and then he comes back to the states and that's where he's really tested like it's when he's caring for his sick dad and when he's in busy new york subways that it's like that is when the his spiritual practice is kind of put to the test to some degree um, I imagine there's a, there's a parallel there. Yeah. I mean, even with New York, I left New York. That's where I burned out and I really wanted to flee that place. I came back in 2020, I remember for a couple of days before heading back to Asia. And it's just like, did not want to be there. It was so intense, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. like so much pain. And then we lived there for a month and a half. Um, this winter and it's like, ah, oh, I'm okay. I'm like, so like the last few months for sure have really been just this, like realizing I'm, I'm good. Like <laughs> I have like solid foundation now. I'm, I'm going to be okay. Mm. Yeah. You, you seem it. <laughs> well, yeah. And I'm showing up happier and yeah. more connected. I think more optimistic. And I, I think I buried my optimism mm. there for a while, at least an outward optimism. Mm. Um, and I'm able to like really just bring that energy and I'm excited to like inject that um, fully. I, lo- I love that. So uh, on that note, um, 
it feels almost like I think especially since COVID that a lot of the rest of the world has in some ways like catching up with us like weirdos who've been remote working and doing <laughs> yeah. thing for a while do you do you have any predictions or sense for what might be coming in the next in the next few years um like what's what's your what's your sense I definitely saw a lot of things happen quickly. It wasn't surprising. Um, I was surprised at how quick some things happened. Like some friends that have been just complaining for years. And then by April of the pandemic, they had made massive life changes. Uh, a handful of circumstances like that. I was surprised at the speed. Um, but I think that acted as a trigger for people. Um, I have had a lot more conversations with people who have not made changes yet. So I sort of have a preview of there are coming changes. Um, and often I'll talk to people and they'll like w say they want to keep talking to me and then they disappear. Um, and that reminds me of like a few years before I left my job, like when people would give me invitations to go deeper, I would get scared and like, turn away and it wasn't until that coach challenged me to like try and become a coach that i like accepted my first invitation mm. um and i i think there's a lot of people who are like two to three years away from really interesting paths i think a lot of the millennials who like have always just more or less just wanted to fit in and be like their parents living in suburbs have like more or less taken care of that <laughs> and like done that so we've seen like that um full expression but we haven't seen the full experimentation yet i think the experiments in the next two to three years are going to be wild um especially with the next generation mm. um th there's just a hunger for difference and more and i think austin right now is one of these um points yep. i never thought there could be a place in the u.s that felt like places like Chiang Mai and puerto escondido mm. and Bali, um, and even parts of like Taiwan and other expat hangouts. But the, for the first time, there's like an interesting energy here of like, people are just like moving here. Cause there's just like other people that are doing interesting things here. Um, and that's very much how Bali has felt to me mm -hmm. over the years of going there too. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I'd love to visit Austin at some point myself as well. I, I know the, you were staying with the creative cabins guys recently, and there's just a bunch of really interesting yeah. people being attracted to that yeah amazing um okay well I, I know it's getting it's getting late over there so um would it be all right to ask a few rapid fire questions and then we'll we'll wrap this up let's do it okay i should have prepared for these two oh, these are different every time so your preparation would have been oh, useless. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> um first question uh, what is your greatest wish for this book in the coming months or years uh, my greatest wish was probably that my parents would read it and they <laughs> they have and like they seem to like it and that's been really cool. Amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Um, how do you define success now? Didn't I define it in the book? <laughs> I have to like cheat and read my own book. I think um, success is like, am I am I doing the things I claim to care about and continuing to stay true to that? So like, it's an evolving dynamic thing. Yeah. Like, uh, the conversational nature of success. 
Beautiful. Yeah. Um, who is one person you would love to have a conversation with on your podcast and why? I think probably Tyler Cowan or Russ Roberts. Um, older, super thoughtful men that are curious about the world and um, like to explore ideas. So probably those two I've just been following and inspired by for years. What's one book that you've read in the past couple of years that's made a big impact on you? The great work of your life is huge. I mean, there's been so many, I probably read like 50 books in the past couple of years, but um, yeah, the great work of your life was so powerful because it really helped me detach from basically I knew I didn't want to escape work, uh, but I didn't know what else there was. And it really leveled it up to like, Oh, the work of your life is actually just figuring out the things you want to keep doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What still feels like an edge for you or what is one way that default path pool is still present? Uh, definitely the playfulness. Uh, so leaning into that, I think, um, I'm definitely still a bit rigid and tight um, and like scared of like standing out. I think I grew up with this very blue collar mentality of like, don't stand out, follow the herd. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so definitely the playfulness. So this year is all about that. I'm planning on taking tap dance classes. Nice. <laughs> um, I've been doing yo-yo. I've been um, gonna do DJ classes. Me and Angie are trying to dance more, so. Amazing amazing yeah that's been a life for me too i tried a side note i tried an oculus for the first time around a friend's house and it was incredible <laughs> i just had so much fun it's quite unexpected um and then last question what are you most excited for in the coming years uh i think having kids hmm. um the coming years um so yeah that's probably what i'm most excited about that seems like yeah, I think like the the work stuff is easy. Like I kind of know stuff I want to keep doing, and definitely saw it work its way out. But yeah, I think uh, making the making the game bigger than myself. Mm. Beautiful. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. I'm glad we finally finally made this happen. <laughs> glad we waited to. Um, where can listeners find out more about you, your podcast, your book, your work? Yeah, think-boundless.com and uh, or Paul Millard, who, like Johnny Miller with a D at the end. Um, and I'm really the only one with the internet presence, so I'll pop up. Perfect. So I'd like to close with this Rilke line. Try to love the questions themselves and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. With that in mind, what is the question that is most alive in your consciousness right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? I think the question I'm always thinking about is like, how can I help other people thrive? Uh, it's a powerful guiding question for me and I just get a kick out of helping people. <laughs> Okay, 
we will wrap the show with that. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, Johnny. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life.